Today, as I announced before, we want to begin with the study of the book of James. It's toward the end of the Bible. I'd like to consider today the first 12 verses. It's nice to have my wife back. As you know, she couldn't be with us last Sunday, but I picked her up at the airport. And we discovered it's much more of a rigmarole if you're going to park your car than it used to be. So I decided if I ever have to pick anybody in the airport again, I think I'll wait a half an hour and give them a chance to get out so I can just go by and get them, not go through all that difficulty. Well, we have the book of James. It might be considered as an owner's manual for living victoriously. You know, if you get a new car, sometimes even a used one, you get the owner's manual, how it's to be operated successfully. Well, the book of James is very much a practical book on living the way God wants us to live. First verse says, James, a servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are scattered abroad. Greeting. Question arises, when was this book written? Well, we don't know exactly when, but perhaps 61 or 62 A.D. Now, we think Peter was martyred in Rome about 64, which would be two or three years later. And who was James? Was he the Apostle James? Well, you remember in the book of Acts chapter 12, Herod had him executed. So this was quite early. We don't think that it was the Apostle James. We do think it was the half-brother of Jesus. One of his half-brothers was named James. And you remember originally, too, the brothers and the sisters really didn't believe in him. But this James, and perhaps all of them eventually did, trust in him. So we don't think he was the Apostle James, but we think he was the half-brother, one of the siblings of Jesus. Now, one of the reasons we think that is because James, in Acts chapter 15, appeared to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he kind of gave the closing speech and seemed to be in charge of things. And I understand the language that is used there in, by James in Acts chapter 15 very much corresponds to the language used in the book of James. And so that's strong evidence that it was the Lord's half-brother, and this is generally accepted by the scholars, that it was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, this particular James. Now notice, first of all, he says, James, a slave of God. The word slave is really denigrated these days. We look upon slavery as a very horrible thing. And there's something to be said for that, of course. 
But back in the Roman times, they had slaves, and often they were Greek slaves to Roman people and others. And it wasn't looked down upon like it is today in our country. But he identifies him himself as a slave of Jesus, a servant of the Lord and of God. Can we identify with that? Are we too slaves, servants of Jesus and of God? You remember in Mark 10, 44 and 45, how Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was a slave of the Lord's will, and thus he had true freedom. Real freedom comes in being a servant, a slave of God Almighty. So he identifies himself, first of all, as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is Lord. He's God's son. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He offers eternal life to all who repent and put their faith in him. And have you not done that? So important that each one of us have that personal trust in Jesus, and we keep that trust alive. And he writes to the 12 tribes here in verse 1 who are scattered abroad, greeting. And there's a denomination or sect or two that says some of the tribes are lost. <laughs> James doesn't seem to go along with that at all, does he? He says it's to the 12 tribes. And there's a word for those who were dispersed, the diaspora. Now that happened when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered. They were dispersed. And it happened when the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered. They were dispersed as well. First of all by the Assyrians and then secondly by the Babylonians. But in Christianity time, there was also a disbursement, a diaspora. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 8, here's what we find in verse 4. Therefore, they who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. God's people had a diaspora as well. They were scattered away from Jerusalem into various places. And so James is writing to those who were scattered. He seemed to be very concerned that many people claimed to be Christians but were not showing the evidence of genuine living faith in their lives. They didn't care for one another like they should, and we talked about that last Sunday, did we not? He was so concerned that their faith didn't seem to make vital changes in their lives that in chapter 2 later, which we can study, he said that is a dead faith. And so we want to be sure we have a living faith, do we not? A faith that affects our lives, a faith that causes us to be slaves and servants of God Almighty. 
a faith that causes us to love one another and to have a changed and victorious life. Let's go on now with the next few verses. James 1, beginning in verse 2. My brothers, you see he's writing to fellow Christians, and they were brothers too, racially, but especially fellow Christians. He says something amazing here. My brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, testings, temptations. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? Count it all joy when you're going through troubles? Second song was beautifully fitted to this first chapter. In good times, in difficult times, we can count it joy to be Christ's servants. When you're going through a trial, a difficulty, even though you don't feel it, maybe, you're to count it all joy. Now, that seems a hard thing, and it is. Consider it so, whether you feel it or not. Well, why? Why would you do that? What well, goes on here? Knowing this, this is why you can do that. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith works or develops endurance, patience. You see, it's hard to go through the trial, but know this, that it's to help you be a better person, to develop your character, to make you more Christ-like, to give you victory, to be a strong witness in such times. Faith develops endurance, patience. But let endurance have its perfect work, its complete work, that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. Don't fight it, he says. Let God's molding happen in your life to turn you into a better Christian, a better servant, of Jesus. Count it all joy, whether you feel it or not. Years ago, when I was working in the First Baptist Church of Fullerton, one of the Christian girls, a high school girl, I think she was a sophomore, I was visiting in their home, and she had contracted mononucleosis. And that's a thing that would test you test your faith, test your life. And she shared with me, believe it or not, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Not only so, we glory in tribulations. We glory in troubles. See, that's the same type of thing, isn't it? We glory in troubles also, knowing that troubles develop endurance. Same thing that we find here in the beginning of James, is it not? And endurance develops experience. And experience develops hope. And hope does not make ashamed 
because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So she grasped the concept. Though she was going through a difficult time with mononucleosis, yet she was being developed. Her character is being fashioned as it ought to be. And of course, most of us know Romans chapter 8, do we not? Talks about this as well, beginning in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. That would be trials and tribulations as well as good times and what have you. All things work together for good to them who love God. Another way of saying to those who really trust God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. It's a character thing. A development of who you are. Your endurance your faith, your love, your servanthood to the Lord. That's the way we're to look at these difficulties. Hard to do, but count it all joy and know God is doing his work. It's been said, God isn't finished with me yet. (laughs) He loves us enough to keep after us and to help us. The Apostle Paul had a problem called a thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Lest he should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me, a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, it says that in verse 7. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I asked the Lord three times that it might depart from me. It was a tough thing to have this thorn in the flesh. I think it was an eye ailment, maybe a carryover from when he had met the Lord on the Damascus Road. Whatever it was, he prayed three times, God might take this trial away, this difficulty. And he, God said to him, My grace, and we sang about grace, did we not? My grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a paradox. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, get this, I take pleasure in weaknesses. Amazing. In reproaches in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, it was helping his character. It was helping him more rely on God. And so he could take pleasure in it. He could count it all joy, these difficulties that were happening to him. Maybe that will help us if and when we go through trials and troubles and tribulations and temptations. Now let's go on a little bit here and realize that God really 
evidently does not allow to be put upon more than we can deal with. We find this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. My brother once felt that applied to him. He had a problem in getting in elevators, I guess sort of a claustrophobic type of thing. And at one point he felt that he, God had given him a victory over that kind of thing. One of the greatest examples in the Bible of someone going through testing and trials and troubles and really great difficulties, who would you say he was? Besides Jesus, of course, he went through the worst, but who else was a great example of difficulties and problems and testings? Who would you say? How about Job? You see, they didn't know. He didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. He just knew what had happened to him and his family, and it was horrible. But he never really would curse God like his wife told him to. He'd argue with God, but he wouldn't turn against God. Finally, God revealed himself, God. He didn't necessarily have to know even then what had happened and why it had happened, that is. But he came out of the test quite beautifully, not perfectly, but quite well. Job, a great example of suffering and learning endurance. And what happened to Job afterwards? You remember? God greatly blessed him. As far as physical possessions, he gave him double what he had before. And he restored his children by the very same wife that had told him to curse God and die. <laughs> That's an interesting situation. But we find then that Job was greatly blessed in the end. And as we may go through trials, we can count it all joy. We can realize that the ultimate will be good for us. And through it, we may honor and glorify God. Faith develops patience. Now back to James, chapter 1, picking up at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask from God who gives to all men liberally and does not scold, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he who wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed about. Because let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Our hearts are, be, are to be undivided in faith and loyalty. See Psalm 86 verse 11. We're to have a faith that is solid and sure in God. Now we learn in Proverbs that wisdom for which we could pray is a very valuable commodity. It says it's more precious than rubies. Proverbs 8, 11. Something we really need. How to put things together. The wisdom of knowing how to live our lives. The wisdom of 
knowing how to deal in certain situations, including trials and troubles. It's interesting that this is put where it is in God's word in the context because it's before trials and troubles. It talks about beginning in verse 12 and even back in verses 9 through 11 somewhat and certainly here earlier in verses 2 through 4. We need wisdom in all these situations, whether we're going through good times or bad times. And you remember how the Apostle Paul could say basically that he had victory whether it was good or whether it was bad in the book of Philippians. He could do all things through Christ who gave him strength. In addition to praying for wisdom, which is so valuable, which we all need, we can also pray for faith. That's so important. Luke 17, a beautiful situation. The apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith, and he gave them an illustration, the beginning of that chapter. Kind of a story. Someone who was serving his Lord as a servant. And when the servant got in, in the evening after working in the field, the master didn't say, okay, rest and take it easy. He said, fix my supper, take care of things. So the guy had to do that. Jesus says, does the master then thank him for doing all this? And afterward, finally, he could eat. No, he doesn't even thank him. Now, we would think it'd be a nice thing to thank somebody for something like that, but point is, he said, it's my duty to do it. And so we don't take credit to ourselves. We give all the glory and honor to God. And it goes on then in verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, the lowly person that he's lifted up. But the rich in that he is made poor or low. Well, that'd be a hard thing to do. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. Psalm 39, verse 5 says, a person, even in his strength, is like a flower. He's fading. He's passing. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower thereof falls away, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. Also, so shall the rich man fade away in his ways." The rich person needs to realize, hey, this isn't permanent. <laughs> it's just a temporary thing. If not taken away somehow in this life, got to leave it all behind when we leave this life and go into the afterlife, do we not? Yesterday I had a graveside, a lady that, and her husband, and a daughter-in-law, Apparently, there had been a connection with me way back years ago when I was pastoring First Baptist of Placerville. And she was 81 and 
had a problem with COPD and she passed on. We're all like that, are we not? We're only here for a little while. Isn't it wisdom then to live for the things that count and that last forever and ever? The things of the Lord. The end of the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, tells us, therefore, my beloved brethren, that we're to be abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, it lasts. It counts. A little poem says something like that. Just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. <laughs> Back to James 1, 9 through 11. So it talks about the poor. It talks about the rich. Now what is a rich person? I suspect when viewed from the lens of some very poor people in certain parts of the world, in Africa and India and what have you, we all, every one of us, would be considered rich. <laughs> some of them have really no dwelling place even, maybe some cardboard shacks or something. Some living at a dump and try to eke out a living from what other people throw away. To many people of the world, we, every one of us, are considered rich. <laughs> we may not consider ourselves that way, but when you come right down to it, we're enormously blessed, not only spiritually, but even physically, with all the things that we have. Now, what does the Bible actually tell us when we have an abundance of material goods? Well, we find in... 1 Timothy chapter 6, an important passage in my opinion. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 17. Charge them who are rich in this world that they do not be high-minded. In other words, don't get proud. Don't think you're so much better than somebody else, as it were. Such as those people in other places that live in cardboard shacks, nor depend on uncertain riches. What we have is all uncertain, can be taken away. You've heard about the great crash in 1929. We've had some other recessions and crashes too, but that seemed to have been the worst. How that some people had even borrowed ahead to buy stocks, and when it all crashed, some of them lost everything, and some of the rich ones even, I understand, committed suicide. It was such a horrible thing. So here we're told in verse 17, don't trust, don't depend on riches which are uncertain, but in the living God. Instead, trust in God. And even if you do have this world's goods, let your faith be in God Almighty, not in the world's goods. I like, too, what it goes on to say. Who has given us richly all things to enjoy. Now, that's a, quite a statement. In the early days, and even today, some people think the more they 
deny themselves and punish themselves physically, not eating properly, maybe being a hermit type of person and so on. They trust in those things. They think it's wrong to enjoy anything. <laughs> but that's not what the Bible says, is it? It says God has given us all things to enjoy. We can enjoy it and give thanks for it. And we should. We shouldn't feel guilty about such things. goes on in verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. You see, he just talked about being rich in good works and back in verse 18, the middle verse there. That's great advice, is it not? Told us how to deal with things. I like what it says in Luke 12, verse 15. It tells us that life does not consist of the abundance of things that we own. That's not what life's all about. It's a blessing if we have them and we thank God for them and we can enjoy things. But life is really about God and our relationship and our faith in him. And we pray to him for wisdom to know how to use these things. James 2.5, also later, we can study about those who are poor. And they can be rich in faith. Now let's go to the last verse here. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Trials, troubles, tribulation, what have you. Because when he is tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them who love him. That's a beautiful expression and promise, isn't it? The crown of life. Imagine Jesus giving you, as it were, the crown of life. That involves eternal life. That involves a relationship with him. And people say that they love the Lord. And Jesus tells us in John 14 that if we love him, we're going to be serving him. We're going to be keeping his commands. And that crown of life is a great thing to think about, a great victory that's promised. And so we need to win out over trials and troubles and temptations. There are difficulties, and then there are the kind that we can really call temptation that is an attraction toward moral evil, doing something that's really wrong. And later the passage, which we want to pick up with next Sunday, begins dealing with that issue, issues that are moral and wrong and that spring from within our fallen nature. But what happens when we go through that kind of temptation and other trials and troubles in our lives. I close with an illustration. Years ago, before the development of airplanes as they have become today, there was an aviator named Page. And 
he had landed in Arabia and taken off in one of these older planes. And when he was way up in the sky, he heard a rat gnawing on something. Well, that was very frightening. He realized this could be a very dangerous situation. Well, what to do? He had some wisdom here. He had heard that rats cannot survive at high altitudes. So what he did is he took his plane higher and higher and higher. In fact, he went so high that he began to find difficulty in his own breathing. And then eventually he came down and landed and he found a dead rat. That's a beautiful illustration. Rise higher in fighting temptation, higher to God. Rise up in your faith. Trust him with all your heart. Rise higher. So let's think of that. When we're tested and tried and troubled and even find it almost impossible to resist a temptation, let's rise higher, closer to God, receiving his power and his strength and his help in all things. And so I close by rereading this last verse of our study today, James 1.12. What a promise it is to us. Blessed is the man or woman that endures temptation, because when he is tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them who love him. And remember, when you love him, you're going to obey him. It's going to be seen in your life. James was concerned that people were professing to be Christian, but not living victoriously as Christians. And so he set the example. He lived as a slave to God. He cared about God's people. He put faith into action. God had given him wisdom, and he so lived. May this be true with each and every one of us. May we be encouraged as we continue our study in the book of James and with what we have heard today. Shall we have a prayer of commitment? Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful book, this book that calls us to wisdom and faith and servanthood. May we understand what being a slave to God really entails and how it brings victory and joy into our lives. Thank you for James. Thank you for a living faith. Help us, Lord, to now dedicate ourselves to you and to have that faith, to receive that grace, to have that help from you day by day, and to live in the assurance of your promises, which are solid and certain. Bless you, Lord. Praise you. Thank you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday again.